Lesson five here is our final lesson on the book of Judges. We're covering chapter 17 through 21, the epilogue or epilogue, it's a double epilogue. We're going to be looking at these chapters, and I've entitled the lesson, The Dictatorship of Relativism. This is going to become very evident why I've entitled it this way as we move through the story and we see the inclusio that begins and ends this section. But the expression, the, the coining the phrase, dictatorship of relativism, comes from Benedict XVI, who coined this phrase for the problems that we're dealing with in our own modern times, where everyone does whatever is right in their own eyes. And uh, tolerance really is the only accepted virtue. You know, you have to tolerate people, and if what's right for them is right for them, and you can't say anything about it, right? Uh, there is no objective truth. There is no objective morality. So I thought that was a good title uh, for this, because this is exactly what we're going to see in this section. Now, chapters 20, or 17 through 21 here, it forms an, a whole. It forms a whole unit. It is an epilogue. We've looked through all of the major judges. The minor judges, of course, have just a few little verses for them. But we've progressed from uh, all the very beginnings, Othniel, all the way to Samson. Samson, of course, being the most airtime. He's the most popular, but he is the most frustrating. We talked about all that in Lesson 4. Now we're looking at a conclusion for this period that is just struggling so much with fidelity with God. There's the cycles of sin and mercy over and over again, as we've been seeing all along. Well, now the epilogues is going to provide a lot more fr a lot more frustrating content here as an explanation of what's going on. So the epilogue is twofold. It's part one, part two. So, and it really, like you, if you go back to chapters one and two, you discover, if you remember, that we have a twofold prologue. It opens up the book. The first section, the first part of the prologue, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. And then the second part of the prologue is chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. And you might remember that, and we talked about this, I think it's the second lesson now. The first chapter discusses all of the tribes trying to fight the Canaanites and them going out to fight. Judah is the one that leads them. And that's going to be important as we move forward here. Judah is the one, the tribe, the kingly tribe who leads the attack against the Canaanites because this is the generation after Joshua dies. And they're having all kinds of problems and failures. They're not really completing the task. And then you'll remember that the angel of the Lord in the first verses of chapter two, the angel of the Lord came out and chastised Israel for not following through with the plan. And they begin to weep. If you remember this story, they begin to weep at a place called Bohim or Bokim. I like the sound, the Bohim. And that means weepers. And so they're a bunch of crybabies with no real contrition. And they're just kind of sad that they got chastised, I, th I think is what's going on here. I think it's evident that contrition is a compunction is not really, really going down deep into their heart. So they cry, but then it talks about here in the second prologue in the very, very beginning, how they were unfaithful, how they went and played the harlot after other gods. There arose another generation that did not know the Lord. God sends up judges, and then they get worse and worse as they don't listen to the judges. And then the first verses of chapter three, it ends everything saying that God abandoned uh, Israel because Israel served these other gods. And they left all of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and all these people. God left them there as a testing for them to see would they cling to God or not. But they didn't. They made foreign marriages with these other peoples and it just got worse and worse. Okay, you, if you hopefully has a really, really quick summary of what's going on in that double prologue. Now you have very strategically a double epilogue. So you've got a double prologue, a twofold prologue and a twofold epilogue here that concludes the whole book. 
but there's a difference in emphasis. The prologue is emphasizing how Israel is meant to go conquer their foreign enemies, the, the peoples that are attacking them and driving them into idolatry, how Israel, the, tri- the tribes of Israel, have to be united against the Canaanites and these other gods. Now we're seeing something is shifting here. So here's a quick little quote for you from your Catholic study Bible saying, if earlier chapters underscore the threat that foreign aggressors pose to Israel, these final chapters show that Israel is also threatened by internal disintegration and collapse from within, end quote. That is really, really significant. At the beginning of this book, they're having to deal with foreign aggressors and drive out these idolaters out of the land and annihilate them. But we discover over and over again that they don't do this. And they fall prey to their practices. And as a result, they're beginning to be an enemy unto themselves. There's internal disintegration. There's civil war. We've already seen seeds of this. And we're going to see it take place with an even greater um, disaster. Okay. So at the beginning, they should be united against a foreign enemy. But now they're an enemy to themselves because sin has driven them to fight against each other. That's what's going on here. That's the, dis- the distinction between the twofold prologue and the twofold epilogue. Sin will cause you to fight against your brothers. Uh, it's a horrible reality. So these events that are described in chapter 17 through 21 are pretty darn awful. Right? I'm just warning you, this lesson is a difficult one because you're just scratching your head thinking, how in the world could all of this happen? How, how could this be inspired scripture? We've already seen some dark things like Jephthah sacrificing his daughter, which I kind of think that is the proper interpretation. We discussed before how maybe he's consecrating his daughter to be a perpetual virgin in the tabernacle. I think that's a stretch. But nevertheless here, you read these chapters and you're wondering what is happening. It's super dark. There's absolute chaos across all society, socially, morally, religiously, liturgically. It's super, super dark. And so what's going on is that these events are describing the overarching disease of sin that plagues this entire period. And these events probably happen early on in the period of the judges, and various commentators will point this out. We know that because Phineas is mentioned, for example, and he's the grandson of of Aaron. Uh, The grandson of Moses is mentioned as a Levite. I'll share that with you in a moment. So you've got the grandsons of these great leaders. And so a lot of people say, well, this seems to have been pretty soon after Joshua's death, right? When that new generation arose that did not know the Lord, the opening verses of chapter three describe that. This is kind of what's going on here. They're departing from the Lord very, very quickly. They're departing from his law. So if these events happened at the beginning of the period of the judges, the question then becomes, why are they being described here in this epilogue? Why are, why are they at the end of the story? I think it's because, and various commentators will point this out, because it really provides an explanatory summary of the problems of the whole era. I think you just mentioned that, right? It's, a, it's an overview, a summary of the whole era of chaos, chaos resulting from, well, this, an inclusio, right? That's what I want to say next, actually. All this chaos that is occurring here is plaguing the entire period of the judges, this give or take 300-year time span. Why is that happening? Well, an inclusio tells us why. Now, if you remember, an inclusio is a literary device where you've got a section of scripture. It could be a whole book, a section within a book, an epistle, or a paragraph, or whatever it might be, where the beginning and the end has the same refrain or the same point. It could actually be the same verse, as is this case. And that's what you discover. So chapter 17 
the beginning of this conclusion or this epilogue, chapter 17, verse 6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the very last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those, ga- in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That repetition there is very significant. It's an inclusio. It's a bookend. Think of them as bookends. And so all the disaster that's going on here in this section is a result of the fact that they have no king, namely God. I've emphasized this multiple times in past lessons. God is supposed to reign over them. Gideon got that right, if you remember. They wanted to make Gideon king, and he said, no, the Lord will rule over you. That's exactly correct. Then, of course, Gideon screwed it all up because he begins behaving like a king, and we discussed that at that particular point. But God is supposed to be their king, and they've rejected God's kingship over them. And they're doing whatever the heck they want. They're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And that's the reason why we have all this social, moral, religious, liturgical chaos. Because they're not following God's law. It's moral relativism. It's subjectivism. You know, they're they're making themselves their own kings. And really, they're making themselves their own gods. So because of that... The scriptures are teaching us that when a society rejects God and does whatever they want, whatever is right in their own eyes, whatever they feel like doing whenever they wake up in the morning, you're going to have this chaos. It is a very sobering, very instructive lesson for every single generation. So when you read this stuff, and and I always like to joke, HBO's got nothing on the Old Testament, especially the book of Judges. HBO can make a miniseries on the book of Judges and be faithful to the text, and it would be just as scandalous as some of the things that they might have over there on their platform. All right, but the, but the point here is there's a reason for it, and it's supposed to teach us to cling to God, not turn away from God. And this is nothing new, this moral relativism, subjectivism, self-deification, if you really want to call it that, I think that's a good way to describe it, self-deification, wanting to be like God. There's a, there's a reason why I say that, because it goes all the way back to the beginning of salvation history. First, let's back up a little bit and just go to Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12, before he dies, you might remember that Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament. uh, They're there at the plains of of, uh, Mount Nebo, uh, the plains of Moab across the Jordan River, and Moses is giving the law of Deuteronomy because they just sinned at Baal Peor. So he tells them in chapter 12, verse 8, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here this day, Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Moses was dealing with a generation, two generations to be precise, of a bunch of knuckleheads not obeying him and just driving him, driving him crazy. You know, if, he, if his beard wasn't gray before the Exodus, guaranteed it was gray after the Exodus. Uh, so they're driving him up the wall with all their disobedience and idolatry. And essentially he says, don't do that anymore. Don't do whatever you want, whatever is right in your own eyes. There's God's law to follow. And then he lays it out, God's law, the Ten Commandments. And then, of course, the application of the Ten Commandments is the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. But it goes back even farther than that. You need to go to the very beginning, the very first fall in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. You know the story very well, I'm sure, and especially if you've taken my salvation history course and the Genesis course. What happens is Satan comes in and he goes after Eve first. He under he undermines the role of authority that Adam should have as head of creation and head of humanity. He goes to her and he tempts her, right, in a variety of different ways, the threefold concupiscence. We can't get into all this right now. But at one point he says, ah, just go ahead and eat it because God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Well, many commentators have pointed out that the Hebrew knowing good and evil, that verb, has this connotation of determining good and evil. It's not just a simple issue of, well, you're ignorant of what evil is. Well, then you're going to know what it is afterwards in an experiential way. It's more than that. It's determining it. To be like God means you can determine what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is true and false. That is what Satan wanted to do. He was envious of God, and so he wanted to be like God, and he fell. St. Michael was faithful to God. That's why his name, Michael, means who is like God. Michael said, God is like God. No one's like God. I'm going to be faithful to God. And so he becomes the commander of the angelic hosts. Satan, on the other hand, wanted to be like God and call the shots. So the nature of Satan's temptation against Adam and Eve was very similar. He says, you guys can call the shots. You don't need to subject yourself to God. Break the yoke. Do whatever you want. Whatever is right in your own eyes. Paraphrasing, right? Determine good and evil. This has been, the lie of moral relativism has been around since the very beginning. And we're dealing with it in a very bad way in our own era, our own culture in the modern times, for sure. Like you just look around and talk to, talk to people and they're just, they say they want to do whatever they want to do. Uh, they conflate free will with freedom. Freedom means being free from sin. Free will be, means being able to choose sin or reject sin. There's a lot to say there, but I think you're picking up what I'm putting down. But the whole point is that this section of judges, this epilogue, begins and ends with the refrain, they're doing whatever they want. They're doing whatever is right in their own eyes because they've rejected God's kingship. And that's the reason why we find such dark, dark stories. So if you've read this section before, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read this section before, I'm not going to spoil it. We'll go through it in the next over this next hour. But it is really, really bad. And so the sacred author is placing it at the end of the book of Judges to tell us all the bad stuff that we've read already with the major judges, even going back to that double prologue where the cycle of sin is described because of catechetical failure and because of their intermarriages with the Canaanites and their idolatry and so on and so forth. It's all because of relativism and rejecting God's law. Okay? So that's kind of a, a longer introduction here, but it's, it's really, really applicable. It's so applicable to us. And if we read the, I'll say one more thing. If we read the book of Judges and we're scandalized, it means we're not paying attention to the events that are going on in our modern time. There are so many awful, awful things happening in our own modern times with, with uh, human trafficking, with drugs, with violence, with political corruption, you name it. There's nothing, Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. All right, so the evil that is occurring in the book of Judges, it's, it is inspired scripture because God is trying to tell us something, to cling to him and to cling to his law with great love and affection and devotion, and then things will be all right. But if we depart from God, then they're not going to be all right. They're going to be like the book of Judges. And I'm telling you right now, we're experiencing this. We're experiencing social and moral and religious and liturgical chaos because we're doing whatever we want feeling a little bit preachy right now. Maybe my caffeine is starting to kick in a little bit. Um, but this, this is an indictment on modern times as well. All right. So with that, I'll get off my soapbox here. Let's understand the story of what's happening here in the first epilogue, which is chapter 17 through 18. We got two stories of Levites and you know, priests. Okay. Because again, it's religious and liturgical insanity happening. So the first one is, uh, the first epilogue is chapter 17 through 18 with, with this Levite. Let's read here verses 1 through 5. 